0: You're listening to Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, episode 23. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, the podcast that puts Bitcoin knowledge within everyone's reach. As always, I'm your host, Josh Humphrey, and we are back from hiatus. I was gone for a couple of weeks. I went to BitBlock Boom and spent some time with my family, and that's been a lot of fun, but we are back. And to kick off our, I don't know, resumption of the show, uh, my guest today is Nick Batia. He is a bond trader, a guy who works in the uh, traditional finance world, but is also very much into Bitcoin and has written several articles recently on Medium about the Lightning Network and how that can um, all be used um, as a basis for lending rates and things. And so um, we're gonna, I'm gonna ask him a bunch of questions because I have almost no knowledge of the traditional finance world. So
1: Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, so you are a bond trader. What all, well, before we get into that, let's get, tell me kind of your background and then how you got into Bitcoin, if you don't mind.
1: Sure. So I work in an, at an investment manager in Los Angeles. Um, we manage assets for institutional clients and I trade U.S. treasuries and other interest rate futures over there. Uh, I got into Bitcoin, Bitcoin in 2016. Um, I had heard of Bitcoin many years before that, uh, but never did the deep dive into how it works until 2016. And uh, then you know, I was reading a lot about it and trying to learn a lot about it uh, <clears throat> right around uh, the time that Segwit was announced. So I got to live through, you know, the whole Segwit, uh, drama and, uh, something about lightning network really attracted me to Bitcoin pretty much from the beginning and, uh, started writing about my ideas about interest rates on lightning network uh, a few months ago and, uh, finally published, uh, the articles before Bit, Blop, Boom.
0: Very cool. And, um, and BitBlock Boom was a lot of fun. I know it was not um as big as some of the other conferences, but I had a blast and uh I thought it was really cool to for for you to be up there talking and then just to kind of turn it over and ask the audience questions and and ask their opinions and and if they had ideas that could kind of work with it. So that was really cool.
1: Yeah, I had a blast at BitBlock Boom uh, in Dallas. I got to meet a bunch of people that I've been following on Twitter for years. And, you know, I was just a Twitter lurker for, you know, years trying to learn about Bitcoin until really this year where I started a, a, you know, fresh account and actually started to engage with people. And I got to meet a bunch of those people in Dallas and got a lot of great feedback. And uh, it was the perfect place to kind of release my material for the first time.
0: Very cool. Yeah. So, um, and I know you and I had kind of talked about this out in the hallway there. You said, you, you made the statement to me, which I had never thought of, that the finance and like uh, the world of finance and economics are are different languages almost, and de- are I guess definitely different studies. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? Because I, I really come to this from more of a technology, a little bit of Austrian economics side of things. And I, you know, finance is not my thing.
1: Right. So economics is the study of how economies work and what affects them and how they relate to or how economic entities relate to each other, like countries, companies, all that. finance is basically a series of cash flows so an investment in something is a negative cash flow and your income is a positive cash flow and that's really what finance is about finance is about how companies spend and then earn money economics is how the economy functions and the study of that so they really are different Uh, economics has a lot of theory involved and finance is really decisions and decisions that lead to profit or loss so uh, they are very distinct. And, you know, I didn't realize that really until studying economics in college when I realized that, you know, this has nothing to do with business and how we invest and try to make money on investments, whether it's in your own company or buying shares in other companies or lending money to other companies or governments, etc.
0: In your, f- I think your first article of these recent ones was the uh, time value of Bitcoin. Is that right? That's right. I've got them pulled up here. Okay. So, and you kind of talk in there about how, um, I don't want to reread the article to people because they need to just go read the articles. Um, I'm trying to think how I can kind of summarize the ideas in there. Um, or, Or maybe you can summarize the ideas better than I can since you wrote it.
1: In the time value Bitcoin, I basically outlined that, I think, <clears throat> I think we can use Lightning Network to establish um, a, a time value for Bitcoin. And what that means is how much is Bitcoin worth from point A to point B? Now, typically in cold storage, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. It doesn't matter how short or long the duration that Bitcoin is in that private key. And in Lightning Network, that's not necessarily the case. And that's the big leap that uh, happens with Lightning Network is now your Bitcoin at the beginning won't necessarily equal your Bitcoin at the end of that payment channel where your Bitcoin is in. And it potentially is more than what you started with. And that's basically what interest is. You invest some capital and you get back more capital at the end of the agreement than what you started with and that's really what started this whole thing is that lightning network means that one bitcoin can actually equal 1.01 bitcoin if you wait long enough and uh that's really what i'm trying to you know explain here now how it leads to a path to the world reserve currency um is more of a multi-step process but establishing time value is the first step uh, towards that.
0: Okay. And that's just to, just to be clear. Um, I mean, we've done a couple episodes about lightning network on here, but, um, for anyone who doesn't get what you're saying, basically, because if you're willing to, um, fund some channels and create some liquidity, you're basically being rewarded for putting your Bitcoin into these channels and, 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 uh, to be used by the network.
1: That's exactly that right. Yeah, and the, the Lightning Network white paper um, puts forward this idea that what you're doing is you're staking liquidity to the network and you're actually providing a short-term lease of your Bitcoin to those that want to use it. And they pay you a fee in exchange for that time uh, that you're leasing it to them. Even if it's instantaneous, they're, they're rewarding you for that and uh that's why we can establish a a positive time value Is because um you know your your money is locked up for a certain period of time and you can earn fees in that time and when the channel is closed you ended up you end up with more bitcoin than you started with.
0: okay so so more or less like once we have um the time value then we can determine like an appropriate rate for for nodes uh, and channels in the Lightning Network that that
1: makes sense, correct? So it's really it's really a, a multi-step process. The first step is let's see how much people are actually earning, right? And so we calculate, um, you know, how many fees they earned, the total Bitcoin that it took to put in all those payment channels, and the time that it took to do so. And <clears throat> looking backwards, we can see. Okay, what was the interest rate of this one node? Now, once we get the if nodes are willing to publish that rate to the network to each other in a in some sort of trustless hashed way, where you know we don't have to trust somebody, but we can actually prove that what they're publishing to us is factually accurate. um, What we can do from there is assess the reward for Lightning Network as a whole, and whether that's some sort of average or some sort of, uh, you know, open source um, publishing mechanism where <clears throat> people can publish their interest rates to each other and express them on like terms, which basically means I'm, I'm putting forward the same, I calculated it the same way you did. And if, if, if everyone can, can publish that to each other, then we can establish what, 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 Can someone expect to be rewarded for establishing a lightning node and staking this uh, Bitcoin to these payment channels? Now, there are a few things here. One of them is that not everybody will be as good as the next guy in how he manages his his, uh, payment channels, right? Some guy might be really good at it and, uh, you know, charging fees that he knows are going to win as far as people choosing his route. Uh, and he'll make more money than the next guy who doesn't pay attention as well, or doesn't have the technical knowledge to, uh, pos- position himself in the network, uh, correctly. And he won't make as much money. So there will be, there will be winners and losers within just the lightning network and establishing, uh, or earning all those interest rates. Um, then because lightning network you're still maintaining custody of your private keys in theory lending your bitcoin to somebody and actually relinquishing the bitcoin itself and sending a transaction on the blockchain uh, should you should be rewarded more than what you would be rewarded on the lightning network because you're taking more risk and that's the age-old adage of more risk, more reward. And so my idea of Lightning Network's reference rate is kind of the next step where Lightning Network establishes baseline interest rates for something that's considered relatively low risk. It's definitely not risk-free. Um, there's you know security risk and channel state risk and payment channel management risk and all these risks, things that can go wrong and you can lose your Bitcoin and Lightning Network. But it's not like you're putting it on an exchange and or lending it to some guy on the street and sending them your Bitcoin to their receive address. And then it's gone from your custody and you have to trust them to pay you back. Right? So it's kind of this progression from lightning risk, lightning network risk, which is low and other risks, which should be higher and therefore a higher interest rate or a higher reward.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. I I thought that was really cool. The, uh, you have this chart here where you have, you know, the lowest risk and the lowest reward is the cold storage, right? Like you said earlier, cold storage is one BTC equals one BTC. And then, um, this lightning network risk, like you said, there, there is risk in the lightning network, but you also have, um, you know, if someone tries to pull a fast one on you with lightning network, um, you know, you, you have the advantage there that you are disincentivized to cheat people. Um, and it, it most likely will go bad for you if you try and cheat someone through lightning channels. So um, yeah, that that's a good uh, starting
1: point, I guess. And let me just saying. clarify one thing is I yeah. in my articles, I've said that I don't think there's any explicit uh, counterparty default risk. Now people are, you know, dissecting that a little bit. And um, I guess, you know, I can say that there's, there's malicious counterparty risk. Like you were saying, you're disincentivized to cheat somebody because they can broadcast the correct state and sweep all your Bitcoin from it. Um, And, and so, you know, I can't say without, you know, I can't say with a hundred percent certainty that there's no counterparty risk, but you know, The message I'm trying to drive home here is like you said, it's, there, there are a lot of reasons that, uh, you know, you should be able to recover your Bitcoin as long as you manage your HTLCs properly. Um, and that's very, it's very unique to have that sort of income opportunity without, uh, having somebody, you know, be able to just default to you really at any point with no recourse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, from your your background in finance, you kind of mentioned these other um, treasury rates and these other reference rates that are kind of based on that. Can you talk a little bit about that for maybe those who aren't, uh, who who don't understand treasury rates or who don't really have that kind of background?
1: Sure. So, think of the U.S. government as your lowest risk borrower. If you are a lender of money, you have capital. You want to lend the money to somebody. Uh, who's, what or who or what is the entity that has the lowest possibility of default? Right now in the traditional finance markets and has as it has been for decades, that entity is the US government. And so US treasuries are considered the risk-free rate, um, even though it's not risk-free, right? The U.S. government can default. <clears throat> they've just proven that, you know, over the course of a hundred, couple hundred years, that they haven't ever defaulted. And so, U.S. Treasuries are considered that baseline interest rate. And in theory, no entity should be able to borrow at a less, or a, a lower interest rate than the U.S. Treasury. Now, it has happened in certain cases. Uh, you know theory isn't always perfect uh, at times certain companies traded with their interest rates lower than US treasuries um, also different countries have interest rates that are lower than US treasuries um, but you know those are denominated in different currencies for example Germany has an interest rate that's lower than the United States interest rate right now but those bonds are in euros so it's not really you're not really comparing apples to apples there um, but right not to digress too much, U.S. Treasuries are considered that baseline interest rate. So a company that's going to borrow, they actually borrow at U.S. Treasuries plus and then a percentage. So for example, if the U.S. Treasury is 3% um, on their 10-year bond, uh, a company, let's just say Walmart, borrows at U.S. Treasuries plus 1%. So if the day that they issue... The treasuries are at three; they'll issue at four. If the treasuries are at two point seven five, they'll issue at three point seven five. And again, those things are always fluctuating in the market. The spread to treasuries is fluctuating based on how creditworthy the borrower is. Um, but you know, the long story short here is that borrowers have to look at what U.S. treasuries are and then offer a spread on top of that. And so, my my the corollary to Bitcoin is that. Lightning network can act as that reference rate where it's a lower risk entity. And if you're going to borrow uh, Bitcoin, you should pay the lightning network rate plus a spread, right? Because it shouldn't be just zero plus a spread anymore because we can now earn money in lightning network in a very low risk way, right? A relatively low risk way. Right. And, and that's, and that's the point here. And then, you know, I get into some other interest rates in my article that are reference rates. Um, but, You know how those function and their position in the markets. uh, It's not necessarily important to understand. You know how reference rates work. If you if you get this U.S. Treasury example, you know there's a a rate called LIBOR. And you know if you're interested, we can get into how LIBOR is different than Treasuries, and uh, I think how maybe it applies to Lightning Network in a in a decent way. Um, But sure, yeah, yeah. So um, sure. So uh, so LIBOR is. you know, LIBOR is as an average of interest rates that banks borrow at. <clears throat> it it used to be more of an interdealer rate, which means that it's the rate at which banks would lend to each other. Um, but that market has dried up since the financial crisis a decade ago, and now LIBOR is essentially an average of where banks borrow from investors. So if you want to buy short-term bond, uh, of a bank, you're lending money to that bank for three months. Let's say, for example, uh, the average of all those rates around the world is what makes up LIBOR, uh, what, what okay. banks, what banks borrow at for three months. And so three month LIBOR is a reference rate for a lot of instruments out there. So a lot of people's mortgages refer to LIBOR, um, <clears throat> companies that borrow, from banks have to play have to pay LIBOR plus an interest rate, um, and why is that? Because banks borrow at LIBOR, so they want to lend at LIBOR plus, right? Um, right. So I think that LIBOR is also a good example of a reference rate, and uh, you know there are some corollaries of, of LIBOR and uh, what would be the Lightning Network reference rate, or what I call NN- LNRR, and <clears throat> you know that's the fact that. Uh, people are lending to each other on a very short-term basis, kind of like the banks used to do. Um, now the banking system is a little bit more fragile, and banks aren't trusting each other that much anymore. Um, so they have to fund themselves from uh, investors uh, instead of each other. Um,
0: now is that because of <coughs> things that went on in two thousand eight, or That's what? Right. What is? Yeah. I mean, I'm just. Trying to figure out here. So, like, what what caused them to not trust each other?
1: Well, um, it is it it does stem from two thousand eight, where the interdealer market, um, you know, stopped working uh, in during the crisis in 08, and it basically never resumed. Gotcha. Uh, so yeah, there's a there's a hangover there, and now LIBOR has to be calculated differently than it used to be. Uh, because oh, okay. it used to be, um, you know, the rate that, and, and also the manipulation scandal uh, that a, a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, banks would publish this rate to each other and kind of move it, move it up and down based off of, uh, you know, trying to skim money off the top. And, um, but now it, you, it's less easily manipulatable because they actually have to publish the the rates at which they borrow from investors. So they can't just kind of keep it private between them uh, as much anymore. It's more of a verifiable rate, if you will.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, and that brings us back to Bitcoin, right? Cause that's, that's so much of what we're trying to do is make this stuff um, transparent and open while, while we are trying to maintain um, a certain level of privacy and and censorship resistance at the same time where we're trying to keep people from uh
1: cheating each other absolutely and you know if you read a tweet of mine that says libor in it and you haven't read my article uh i understand if it does raise a red flag for you because libor is not is has (laughs) it's the opposite of what bitcoin is right it's a closed group of banks that um you know the barrier to entry is very high. And, you know, they're kind of just setting this interest rate or publishing it to each other. And it's not a very open source process whatsoever. Um, But what I'm proposing is a fully open source process. But, you know, use this Libor as an example of how does uh, an interdealer market develop a reference rate, right? And I kind of think of that interdealer market as all these big uh, lightning notes that are going to have a lot of funds in channels. Now, you're not, I don't know, you're probably not going to get a billion people to run a lightning node in the next few years, right? It's going to be, you know, not that many nodes. Maybe it's 100, maybe it's 10,000. Maybe it's 100,000, that would be great. But it is hopefully going to be an open process where the development on how we can calculate each node's interest rate is going to be an open source process. Uh, The method by which we Publish those rates to each other is going to be an open source method. Uh, so, I you know I do understand the people that are reacting negatively and just you know and just seeing the word LIBOR uh, as an analogy for the Lightning Network reference rate, but in reality, that's not what I'm proposing at all. I really want an open source version of LIBOR per se.
0: So you talked. At Bitblock Boom a little bit, and I was trying to see if I could find it in one of your articles, and I, I probably just missed it because I'm going quick here. But you talked about the potential for um, kind of a, a almost a reputation system that determines a borrower's risk for lenders um, potentially based on something like this L N R R. Um, can you? Can you kind of expand on that a little bit?
1: Sure, it's not something that I've written about yet, so um okay, I hope you didn't look too hard.
0: Um, <laughs> no, no, I was just kind of glancing over
1: yeah, um but and i I'm not the first one to to talk about this kind of thing, but i th- there has to be a way to link transactions together to establish your credit worthiness. now, somebody pointed out very quickly that can't you just pay yourself back and go back and forth between, you know, a bunch of different addresses and make it look like you're this very credit worthy entity by uh, showing, you know, the history of your uh, borrowing and then uh, repail repaying of your, of your debt. Sure. Uh, You know, possibly yes. And um, that's something that I hope developers will work on, but, you know, if the blockchain is a public ledger, right, that's how Bitcoin works. And so, yeah, if you can, if you can connect, if you can show that transactions are related to each other by the, you know, the private keys that they're going in and out of, uh, you should be able to establish credit worthiness uh, on chain. And um, there are ideas out there floating around about that. Uh, It's not something that I'm going to be focused on, um, immediately. Uh, I really want to see developers try to come up with a calculation method for lightning network. Um, but I do think eventually the two, the two concepts can meet, you know, further down the road, um, where we can have, uh, some sort of Bitcoin credit rating system, you know, that, the rating agencies in traditional finance, again, like LIBOR, it's a closed source system. You're not really sure. I mean, they do show how they are making their ratings. They do have very specific guidelines that they publish, but it's still a closed process, right? Those companies are private in nature. They collect fees from the companies or entities that pay them for ratings, rating, uh, you know, credit ratings and uh you know let's try to build the open source version of that on bitcoin so that people can actually see how it works and see see for themselves verify on their own fully validating node uh your transaction history you know i know that bitcoin and the protocol will hopefully go in the direction of privacy i know a lot of you know like confidential transactions there are a lot of uh, developments uh, on that on that path and lightning network is a a huge privacy boost to Bitcoin. Um, and the, the more hops that your transaction goes through, uh, the harder it is to track. And those privacy benefits uh, will hopefully continue and be there for those that want them. But there were, will sh- assuredly be entities that want to have all of their transactions public so they can show how creditworthy they are, right? There's, there's going to be both sides of the spectrum. And so I hope that there are efforts made towards proving your creditworthiness through time on chain, um, and you know that can that can help borrowing markets.
0: Yeah, I'm sitting here trying to think, and I know we kind of bounced these ideas around um, a couple of weeks ago, but uh, I I wonder if there is a way to prove your creditworthiness without proving the rest of your transaction history but so if, if you're listening out there in podcast land and you've got good ideas on that, um, <laughs> start working on that. Cause I, I don't know how to make that work either. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that's a cool idea. Um, so, okay. So to get back to what you were talking about on the, um, uh, kind of open sourcing these rates, and and I guess we're still kind of right now in an observational stage, um, and dependent on people to publish their own data. I saw your uh, your kind of your response and your analysis of the difference between uh, Alex Bosworth's earnings and Andreas's earnings. I thought that was really interesting that that it's not just the, the flat amount that is staked to a node.
1: Yeah, it's going to be, you know, variable. Um, it's going to, your return is going to be, is going to depend on, you know, how good you are at managing a Lightning node. And, um, you know, that's a free market. And it, it was cool to see the disparity in interest rates. You know, Alex Bosworth's node made for uh, an annualized rate of, for, you know, a week's period of time. And uh, Andreas, uh, a node that he he also got a data point from, was only making 0.05%, so a difference by a factor of 80. And, you know, that just goes to show you that there's, you know, even if we do end up trying to come up with an average, what... You know, how skewed is that average gonna be? How how fat are the tails is something that we say in statistics, which mean which means how many observations are there gonna be at, you know, the the, the bottom one percent and the the, the top one percent, right? And where do those tails come in? I we have no idea. And Alex Bosworth, you know, wanted to you know, when I was thanking him for allowing me to use his data, he, you know, wanted the public to know that This is not indicative of anything, you know, in the future. This is just what he happened to make for one week, uh, you know, and in the absolute beginning stages of this type of activity. Um, So who knows what it's going to be in a month or a year from now and uh, how those interest rates will evolve. Um, But it was really exciting to finally dissect some actual numbers. And interestingly enough, you know, he, he, Disclosed the amount of fees in satoshis, but the amount of Bitcoin uh, staked to the payment channels in U.S. dollars, which was a little funny to me because those aren't even like terms. So I had to, you know, figure out what exchange rate he used or assumed in his calculation, which was yeah. about seventy four hundred at the time on Bitcoin, um, you know, price in dollars. And you know, then I had to work backwards. So that just goes to show you that, you know, we have to we have to make sure we're all speaking the same language when we disclose our interest rates to each other. And so that process itself should be a lengthy open source discussion and development process where maybe we don't settle on the same calculation uh, method, right? Maybe different wallet providers or different implementations of Lightning want to calculate it different ways. Maybe they'll converge over time or maybe they'll stay separate, right? And uh, I don't know, what's going to happen. I, I would hope that everyone can come together on one method because that would help establish a reference rate that can really be used worldwide. Um, but if there happen to be two, three or 10 and a free market, <laughs> a free capital market references, each rate that they feel is best or they want to use, then that's going to be what happens. And I fully support that as well. Uh, so, uh, I'm excited to see how things play out.
0: Yeah, it's it's really cool and it's just there's so much potential here for yeah, for, for capitalizing on on what you've got and you know, especially and this kind of goes along with the whole hodl mindset or long, you know, low time preference, however you want to say it. But but if you say, Hey, I've got this, I'm gonna hold on to it anyways. I don't plan to spend it right now and, and now we can start working towards like how do we how do we use this to, uh, you know, capitalize on this? How do we make money off it? But but also be able to use it to you know help others in the short term who, you know, maybe have a higher time preference.
1: Right. And one of the origins of this idea that I had, and I you know I'm not the first one to say you can make interest on your lightning Note. And that was something that uh, Andreas Antonopoulos had spoken about you know towards the beginning of Lightning Network that concept. So. You know, this is not something that I've invented here. I'm just uh, trying to further an observation that others have made. But why I think it's so important, and why I chose to dedicate um, my time toward this idea, is because the knock on gold, you know, which is sound money, uh, has historically been well. Gold doesn't have income. It's a it's a pet rock, right? Right. And that whole pet rock critique of gold is kind of true. Even though gold is sound money and, uh, you know, completely different from the fiat world, you can't get income from gold. Um, I know that's not its function. Its function is to be sound, scarce money. Um, But why can't Bitcoin do both? Be sound money and have uh, income associated with it um, on-chain income, right? Not off-chain where you actually lend it. Because you can lend gold to somebody right? And then demand repayment in gold. But you're taking counterparty risk. Um, Yeah, with lightning network that 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 really changes the game here. And, you know, that's, that's really what attracted to me, because I've, I have studied Austrian economics, that is the, you know, economic school that I subscribe to more or less. And um, I think that sound money is, you know, absolutely essential to our civilization. And, you know, fiat, uh, there are a lot of drawbacks to it. And if we can have a sound money that also has a little bit of income associated with it, uh, that's something that excites me as a you know, finance professional and a Bitcoiner and an Austrian econo- uh, you know, economic school type of person. So that's why I chose to work on this and write about it because I want to disseminate you know this idea of a sound money with income.
0: Yeah, very cool. Very cool. And just to be clear, while you are a, a financial professional, you're, uh, we probably have to declare that your, your ideas and your writings on Bitcoin are not reflective of your traditional finance employers.
1: That's correct. Uh, I, my, my ideas and my articles and my Twitter account are my own. Uh, they don't reflect uh, the opinions of my firm, uh, but thankfully they are very supportive of my uh, academic work on Bitcoin, and um, you know they get all my articles as well. And uh, I'm I'm very thankful that um, that they're supportive of this and they're, they you know want me to put out interesting ideas uh, because they're aware of Bitcoin too and. No, we're not, you know, involved in Bitcoin in any way, and our clients don't hire us to do anything related to Bitcoin. Uh, but Bitcoin is changing money as we know it, and uh, I think that there are a lot of people in finance that are aware of this uh, concept. They might not fully understand, uh, you know, how Bitcoin works yet, um, or all the all the goings on in the development. Uh, they might not even realize it's a protocol. To be honest with you. Um, but they are aware that uh, Bitcoin has stolen the attention of uh, a lot of the youth in finance.
0: So do you think, you know, just, I guess on a lot of issues we, we tend to see, and not, I mean, not just Bitcoin, not just finance, just like across society on issues you tend to see, like, especially on social media and things, you see a very vocal, you know, polarized viewpoints, right? So you see one side and then you see the opposite side and they're very very loud about their opinion. And I think in Bitcoin, we see that. We'd see a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of FUD or a lot of people like Paul Krugman or, or, uh, I don't know, Warren Buffett or somebody really downing on Bitcoin. And then you see people like uh, Saifedean or Pierre Richard or, you know, some very vocal Bitcoin maximalists on Twitter. Do you think, um, you know, in, in the circles that you run in, is there Are there a lot of people that are just kind of watching right now, trying to, to see what's going to happen?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I understand uh, where they're coming from when they ask me the, the following question, which is, you know, what about all those other cryptocurrencies? You know, it's is something sure, that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the question that I get kind of the most when I say, oh, I'm working on Bitcoin. And uh, so I don't, and I don't, I don't blame them. They don't understand how Bitcoin works. So for them it they can't really see the fact that it's a protocol and the history of how protocols um you know converge and how smtp is universal http is universal tcpip is universal and so they don't see it from that perspective they they think of you know uh, amazon and walmart or ford and general motors or jp morgan chase and goldman sachs right and so, or Facebook and MySpace, right? Uh, right. You know, they, and that's the framework that they come f- with. Um, so, you know, I, I don't blame them for not being able to see that that's not really what this is about at all. Uh, you know, this is about um, Bitcoin being the protocol that people around the world are converging to, to exchange value over the internet. And... Um, but to answer your question, yes, they are just sitting back and watching. Um, some are, uh, you know, more interested than others. Some, you know, will kind of pay attention when it hits the headlines. Uh, and others are kind of, you know, tracking the price on their Bloomberg terminals and just kind of watching it peripherally. And I'm sure that there are plenty of people that, uh, you know, uh, have Coinbase accounts out there as well that wanted to dabble. Um, and so, but as far as the Bitcoin maximalist types in Bitcoin, uh, if, if there are a ton of others out there in traditional finance, I haven't necessarily met them yet. Now, I see people on Twitter, right, that uh, do come from my world that are <laughs> uh, experts in Bitcoin or, you know, I know we don't like to use that word, but they're, they're, they're very knowledgeable about Bitcoin. Um, but maybe a lot of people do work for regulated entities and can't just be out there talking about Bitcoin because, uh, you know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, anti-fiat sentiments in the Bitcoin world and that, you know, is biting the hand that feeds them. So maybe they're kind of the silent, uh, uh type right now. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I am very happy that I have uh, the support of my firm to come out and talk about Bitcoin and, uh, you know, truly try to progress Bitcoin's capital market uh, and not just, you know, out there talking about the price or, you know, definitely not talking about, you know, the direction of the price of Bitcoin, right. And how I think people can make money, uh, you know, trading Bitcoin. So uh, I think because that's not what I'm focused on, um, you know, I'm more able to come out and share ideas with people.
0: Yeah. That's very cool. And I think that's going to be um, th- things like this is like what you're working on. It, I, to me, it seems to be everybody keeps talking about like, oh, institutional money is coming. And I think it's things like, you know, maybe this ETF that people are talking about or, or things like this where you go, OK, this is Bitcoin, but in a more f- maybe a more familiar framework when you talk about things like lending rates and stuff, because... I I don't know. I think a lot of people, or at least I did at some point when I, when I really started looking into crypto anarchy and stuff and it's like, Oh, we can end the fed and we can overthrow all these things. And it's like, it's not really going to be everybody living on farms and sending Bitcoin to each other. Like (laughs) it will still have some kind of society and people will still, you know, there will still be people borrowing money and, and, and those kind of things, it will just it will look slightly different, but it it'll still be there.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you know, um, there are a lot of uh, people in Bitcoin that have you know very uh, different political you know backgrounds, and um, there are a, there are definitely a lot of people that believe in crypto anarchy and uh, libertarianism and. Uh, all, you know, all these types of schools of thought that aren't necessarily in the mainstream. Um, And, you know, without talking, you know, about anybody's political alignment, we can actually just look at what's happening in Bitcoin and try to improve it and try to grow it. And that's really what I'm doing here, you know, uh, completely aside from, you know, the and the Fed stuff or the uh, anti-Fed, anti-fiat stuff. Which is, which is all relevant as well, right? I mean, Bitcoin is this new version of sound money that the world has never seen before. And what can happen uh, to the rest of the financial system because of Bitcoin spreading you know, is anybody's guess. Um, but I would like to see Bitcoin succeed. That doesn't mean that you know, fiat's going to die. Um, whether or whether or not it does, I want to put ideas out there on how Bitcoin can evolve by itself without relying on fiat. And so all of my work uh, so far has been completely in Bitcoin denomination and, and, and you know in Bitcoin native thought. It has nothing to do with the price of Bitcoin in US dollar terms, right? It just assumes people are using Bitcoin. That's it. And, uh, uh, you can make the calculation back to dollars if that's, uh, you know, your base currency. But, you know, for now, I'm just going to focus on people that think in Bitcoin terms.
0: That's very cool. Yeah. I, um, I think that's, I think that switch is coming in people's head, but it's, it's still hard because we go to the store, we go to a restaurant and, and everything is denominated in, in fiat currencies. And, uh, and even if you buy something in bitcoin it's in a lot of places you still have to make that conversion rate so
1: right um, but you know what can is, cha- well, you know it can change that is interest rates and yeah. you know if you think oh yeah i can make 1% on my bitcoin you're thinking i'm going to have 1% more bitcoin you can convert it to dollars but you don't know what the dollar price is going to be at the end of 1 year or at the end of your of the term that you know you're assuming that interest rate for and so, the fact that you don't know what the price will be in the future uh, makes you think in Bitcoin terms, and uh, it's right. kind of funny how that works.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. Real quick, um, you you had a thread the other day about um, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin being included in the CFA charter holder test. Can you can you talk about that a little bit and like? What is a charter holder and why, why this matters?
1: Sure. Uh, the CFA Institute um, stands for the Chartered Financial Analyst uh, Institute, and it's a professional designation uh, that is awarded to candidates who pass uh, three exams offered uh, once a year. And uh, so, you know, it takes it takes a, a few years to attain. And it's, it's well-regarded in the asset management industry and um, the people, type of people that uh, try to get their charter are portfolio managers and uh, research analysts and uh, you know, other investment professionals. Um, there are, you know, I believe, over 200,000 or somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 CFA charter holders around the world. Um, they are employed by large asset managers, uh, corporations. Um, you know, as far as uh, the people that are a CFA charter holders in corporations, it's the people that uh, manage the corporation's money. In particular, um, you have CFA charter holders at uh, other governments and you know uh, agency type of institutions that are managing portfolios on behalf of large institutions so basically it's a bunch of uh, portfolio managers and other investment professionals um i think that the and i'm also a cfa charter holder i got my charter uh, recently i started taking the exams um back in 2013 Um, and you you also need four years of professional experience to get your charter and I, I do think it's a big deal because the CFA program uh, candidates end up going on to be, you know, investment professionals for very large allocations of capital. And uh, the fact that Bitcoin is going to be on the test uh, just means that in five years time, you're going to have, you know, thousands of really high profile investment managers that, you know, are well aware of Bitcoin and are also, aware that you know a small allocation to bitcoin might be appropriate for a lot of investors and uh, i it it will just help uh, adoption over the long term you know it's not going to directly correlate to some huge rise in you know the bitcoin price or anything like that i don't want to get carried away but the truth of the matter is uh, it is going to help institutional money uh familiarize themselves with potential investments in Bitcoin. And that does excite me, Uh, you know, ETFs will help. Futures contracts will help also, Um, you know, Bitcoin isn't just going to be held by HODLers forever. HODLers will (laughs) release their Bitcoin to the public at a price. I know people think they want to, are going to hold forever, but there is a price that everybody will sell at. So. You know That price is much, much, much higher than it is today. Some of the people that are all about the HODL uh, mentality, its they're all of a sudden going to be looking at a sum of money that changes their life forever, and they're going to sell, and the institutions will probably be the ones on the other side of that trade, um, and both parties will be happy, hopefully. Uh, so uh, I do think that the CFA program adding crypto uh, is a big deal. I hope that they cover uh, some of the history of Bitcoin and uh, you know what was written in the genesis block. I'm not sure that they will, um, <laughs> uh, but I, I I do hope people that people find what was in the genesis block because it does help you understand what Bitcoin is and what it was created for, uh, and that it is meant to be sound money. Uh, And that that was the intent from the beginning. Um, And so while I doubt that uh, that type of cypherpunk history and, you know, the contents of the Genesis block will be in the CFA curriculum, people will end up there. Uh, You know, I ended up there, um, you know, and the reason that I got into Bitcoin and really, you know, wanted to do that deep dive was there was all this talk about blockchain this and blockchain that in the financial industry. And I was like, you know, let me check this out. And I ended up, you know, finding out that Bitcoin was intended to be sound money almost right away because I had an Austrian uh, uh, kind of bias to start with, right? Um, So those that have an Austrian bias to start with are going to get Bitcoin right away, right? And as far as the CFA uh, test takers and those that don't may or may not end up there net net it's going to be positive for adoption and uh positive for the education of people about this technology and i'm very excited and very proud uh to be a cfa charter holder um knowing that that they are going to start covering something that is absolutely uh, essential uh for the future of finance
0: yeah that's very cool and uh and congratulations on that that's a lot of work so I mean, uh, obviously, you're not writing this test, so you can't give me the answers. But I just kind of wonder, like, how much when they say crypto, like, how much is it going to be Bitcoin, and and how how much or how many of these altcoins do they go into? Because I, I re- don't know.
1: I really, <laughs> I really, I really don't know. Um, my guess is they're going to use the word cryptocurrency and blockchain a whole lot more than the word Bitcoin, <laughs> just based off of you know some of the stuff that I read. But I do have to say that uh, a lot of the investment banks on Wall Street um, that I deal with personally uh, have great research material on Bitcoin and how it works, and so I can personally vouch for you know you know quite a few firms. Let's call them let's call them a handful of firms on Wall Street that are just doing a great job uh, you know putting out material for their clients. Uh, that don't have necessarily uh, the ability to go uh, find Andreas Antonopoulos' Mastering Bitcoin tomorrow and, and buy it and read it. Right, they're not looking for it, so they're not necessarily going to find it. But if they see a research report from one of their largest counterparties about cryptocurrency, uh, they might go and read it. And uh, that a lot of that stuff has done an excellent job of explaining, you know, how Bitcoin's blockchain actually works. And uh, so that does make me optimistic that um, the curriculum will cover the functionality of a a blockchain and whether or not they attribute it to Bitcoin (laughs) uh, is anybody's guess. Again, I hope they do. Um, I've added them. I've added the Institute a couple times on Twitter uh, to try to, you know, push my uh, opinion on them, but I'm not involved at all. Um, And, you know, we'll hopefully we'll we'll find out a little bit after uh, after the next exam is given. Uh, the level one exam is given in June and December, twice a year. Levels two and three are are only in June. Um, so maybe in December it'll be on the level one curriculum, and uh, um, you know maybe pe- some people, some candidates that get their books uh, will post the uh, pages on, on Twitter and, and we can take a look at what is really in there. And I'm sure that will happen. Uh, you know, Bitcoiners aren't shy. And if, uh, if the material is good, I'm sure they'll post it. And if it's bad, I'm sure they'll post it. And, uh, we'll all get to see what's in there pretty soon.
0: Yeah. Very cool. That's good to know. Um, there was something else I was going to say and I just lost it. Oh man. Hmm. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Was there anything else big I had? Oh, I know what I was going to say. I was just going to say, um, yeah, it's, it's neat. And it's kind of like, um, it, it's good to have it, even though a lot of these things are are kind of overlapping or repetitive, I think, You know, this is something that when I started this show, I looked at and I went, well, is there enough podcasts already out there? And and at the time, there were a few and they were mostly on YouTube. But it's kind of like I think everyone needs to kind of hit their circles of influence, you know, and for you, it's talking to those guys. And um, for me, apparently, it's talking to strangers on the Internet. But, um, you know, and just kind of keep putting it out there and eventually it's going to take root. And, um and then the people that that see it and get it will get it and eventually everyone else will will see what it's become and go oh yeah well I was wrong okay let me get on now right so okay well um let's see so Nick you are on Twitter and medium at time value of BTC that's is that correct that's right and, um, and you've got several articles. I'll put them in the show notes. This is going to be episode 23 if I hadn't said that already. So bottomselfbitcoin.com slash 23 will be the show notes for everybody out there. And I will put links to Nick's articles and his Twitter feed. Um, Nick, anything else that you want to plug or anything else you wanted to talk about?
1: No, uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, Definitely check out my articles uh, at time value of BTC, uh, same handle on Twitter. Um, and I'm definitely interested to hear from anybody that uh, wants to progress these ideas. Um, developers are the target audience for my articles because they're the ones that can build this stuff. Uh, I can't, uh, so I hope to hear from a lot of devs. Uh, but just anybody in general that has ideas I've already had a lot of great feedback uh, both in Dallas and in uh, on Twitter uh, so thank you to everybody that has reached out and uh, it is really exciting to see uh, people latch on to this idea and um, you know want to build uh, solutions to some of these uh, potential um you know, issues in Bitcoin here, you know, with regards to capital markets. And so uh, I look forward to hearing from everybody and thanks again for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on. All right, guys, that's going to be our show for today. Um, Y'all make sure and go follow Nick on Twitter. Twitter and medium at time value of BTC. Go check out the show notes for this episode, bottom shelf, Bitcoin.com slash uh, 23. I'll have links to his articles and stuff there. And um, you guys know the drill. Uh, if you want to support the show, Leave me a good review on iTunes or Stitcher. I think I checked and I have a total of zero reviews. So on the plus side, there's no one star reviews, but (laughs) there's also no five star reviews. So if you guys like the show and uh, I actually met some people at BitBlockBoom who had heard of the show. So that was encouraging and it proved to my wife that I'm not just sitting in here talking to a microphone to nobody. Um, But so I know there are a couple of you out there who actually listen to the show. Go me, go leave me a good review on iTunes so that other people will will uh, see the show pop up and can listen and hear all these cool people that uh, come and talk to me. Uh, if you want to support the show financially, you can become a patron, Patreon.com/slash Bottom Shelf Bitcoin. All the links are are uh, also on the website and they'll be in the show notes as well here. So, uh, and then you can also, of course, buy books in the Tuttle Twins series. Uh, at my link, bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash kidsbook. Those are great books teaching uh, free market economics and liberty and you know, the non-aggression principle and things like that. Really great series. I've read, read through them with my kids and, uh, or just give them to your friends who don't understand what it means to um, love liberty. <laughs> and they're, they're good, easy entries for adults as well. Um, so anyways, don't forget to follow me, keep up with all my stuff on Twitter at bottom shelf, BTC, same handle. I've also started posting some stuff on Instagram cause yeah, I mean, it's mostly memes. And then I kind of throw up an image for the, uh, for each episode. I found about five other people on all of Instagram who aren't crypto shills uh altcoin chills. So, uh there's a there's a couple people that are making good memes on Instagram if you're already on Instagram. If you're not on Instagram, don't worry about it. You're not you're not missing a whole bunch. But if you're already on Instagram, uh, you know, make your feed a little better. Follow me there too. All right. Next week, Pierre Richard is going to be on talking about um institutional Money coming into Bitcoin and about social signaling and some other things. So it's gonna be it's a really fun episode. Um, we just we just finished recording that. So spoiler if you if you thought I was doing these live you you were wrong very wrong. Um, anyway, so i uh, got a lot of good guests lined up coming down the pipe. So man, I'm I'm excited to be back. And um, yeah, come back for that. So here's the deal. I do want to end today's episode since this is coming out on August 1st, Bitcoin Independence Day. I want to end this with something that I wrote. And I am not eloquent on the fly, but I can be a little poetic when I write stuff out and have time to plan. So this is going to be better if I read it. So I'm just going to read this to you guys and and just kind of my thoughts on this and why this matters. So um, yeah, here we go. To me, Bitcoin matters because it is sound money that is not subject to the capricious whims of government central planners. It is a rejection of the fiat funny money fiscal policies that allow for never ending welfare and warfare, the degradation of art and culture, the encouragement of consumerism and societal impatience. It is an opportunity for a man or woman to keep what he has earned and transfer those earnings to their future self without the hassle of the physical exchange of precious metals like gold or silver. It allows a parent to transfer wealth to their children without the hassle of taxed inheritance. It allows a person to engage in voluntary exchange with another person regardless of geographical differences without needing the permission of anyone. Those funds cannot be seized and the transaction cannot be censored. Bitcoin achieves this censorship resistance by the decentralized nature of the network. Individuals running their own nodes for their own self-interest create network security as a byproduct. To stop Bitcoin, you must stop each individual node across the planet. Over the past few years, a number of individuals and groups, sometimes working in concert, attempted to bend Bitcoin to their own vision of what it should look like. This ultimately culminated in August of 2017 in the divergence of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, and then again in November with the attempted 2x fork. Powerful men and businesses associated with Bitcoin believed they could use legacy means to control a technology and network designed to disrupt the legacy system. Today, we celebrate freedom from those bad actors who believed that if they took their ball and went home, the network name and money would follow. Who believed that if they colluded with miners, as governments do with unions, they could reshape the network to fit their business infrastructure instead of reworking their business models to serve the users. Today, we celebrate individuals who... By simply running a program on their computer in mass, huddled the line against those who would have made decentralization and thereby censorship resistance ever more difficult to maintain, eventually leading to the collapse of everything Bitcoin represents. Thank you to Shaolin Fry, who developed the framework for the soft fork. Thank you to Samson Mao who gave users a hat to signal in the meat space. Thanks to everyone on Twitter and Reddit that posted memes and hashtag UASF, but mostly Thank you to every user who downloaded and ran that implementation from Shalom Fry. Those of us who came to understand these things after that fight owe you a debt of gratitude. Continue coding. Continue hodling. Continue running open source software. In the words of Timothy May, Arise, you have nothing to lose but your barbed wire fences. I'm Josh Humphrey. Thanks for listening.